hope you're doing well. My name is Anahita Sen, and I'm a co-facilitator of the M&A Stories YouTube podcast, which is brought to you by Fifth Grown Business Insights. Welcome to season three. The theme of this season is culture and its impact on M&A integration. Culture is one of the biggest challenges that face an M&A integration. And this challenge couldn't get any bigger as more companies are pursuing M&A based on people in culture. That is why it is important to understand, internalize, respect, and develop a clear plan of action on how to handle culture in M&A. In this season, we will be interviewing industry leaders from across the globe to hear their stories on how they address culture in an M&A integration. So here we go with today's episode. Hi there. Hope you guys are staying healthy and safe in whatever part of the world you're in. Welcome to another episode of M&A Stories. As you know, the theme of the season is culture. Today, our guest is a senior M&A practitioner, Jennifer Fondreve. Hey, Jennifer, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Let's start with a brief introduction. Well, uh, uh, how brief? Three minutes? Half an hour? <laughs> two days? <laughs> um, I would say 60 to 90 seconds is a good start. Okay. So uh, Jennifer J. Fondreve. I am an author, best-selling author, I'd love to say, of Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions. Uh, I came to that uh, in the last 10 years of my career, I went through three separate multi-billion dollar merger and acquisition deals uh, and thought there had to be a better way of doing M&A. And so wrote the book and now I'm a consultant to business owners, entrepreneurs, startups on how to prepare for uh, and lead people through the changes and uncertainty that come with mergers and acquisitions. It must have been an awesome ride while writing, writing that book. I'm sure, and um, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear uh, some of the stories from uh, that period as well. Now, our topic this season is around culture. So let's start with culture in m and What's your perspective? Uh, well, one, and I know you and I both vehemently agree on this, we consider it crucial to the success uh, or potential challenges that come with a merger and acquisition. Uh, and culture, and I know we're gonna get into this, culture unfortunately is not always uh, one of the key considerations upfront during the due diligence. Uh, and as a result, you have a lot of un unexpected surprises that can happen when you're trying to integrate two companies. And it, this happens whether it's a merger or an acquisition. Uh, and I experienced that firsthand. I talk about it in my book, uh, and it is a, a key piece that I advise uh, business owners and leaders on uh, around that culture aspect, how to do it right, and how to think about it as you prepare for that integration. Sure, sure. And and I know that uh, this is one area, surprisingly, even though so many M&As fail because of culture, and yet this is an area that seems to be under-addressed. Um, what are your thoughts on why is that? Why do businesses not spend enough attention on culture? I think there's two, there's two pieces to the puzzle that are significant. One is the focus is on the transaction. Right. It's on the financials. It's on the valuation. Uh, what What is the valuation and how we, can we get maximum value? Um, and that that driving that upfront part of it means that culture tends to be relegated to a secondary uh, consideration and something that unfortunately, because oftentimes people have a, a difficult time describing culture, it's considered something that we'll just get to once the deal is done. Right, uh, And it should be, and I know you and I both agree, it needs to be factored into the valuation, to the consideration up front. Right. Uh, but when it doesn't, uh, you can have challenges uh, that, that really will undermine the success of the deal. And that's why uh, I know we're big proponents of consider that culture piece sooner in your, in your deal due diligence. Brilliant. Now, I know that you have a story that you want to share with our listeners. 
So let's get on with it. I've got so many stories. <laughs> <laughs> right. The most compelling, I rather let me put it this way, uh, the most relevant one that you've thought for the day. So maybe we start with that. And then as it unfolds, I'm sure you'll be adding on to that story. Well, in, in my story, I, I've been on all sides of the deal equation. Right. I've been acquired, I've been acquirer, have been acquired by private equity. And my stories come through that lens, not having initially been a practitioner. And what was fascinating to me, Anarvin, is it's hard to realize that culture is part of the issue when you're in it, right. when you're going through it. So I have the benefit of hindsight and a lens to look back on what was it that caused the problems. And my first acquisition experience, which is my origin story, it's really mm. what uh, motivated me to write a book. Uh, I was the head of B2B marketing globally um, for a multi-billion dollar um, entrepreneurial oriented company. Right. We were acquired uh, by a B2C company, also multi-billion. So these were, I always want to qualify, these were big companies in, uh, in important markets. And a lot of the conflict I found probably at least for the first 18 months revolved around, we were speaking two different languages. You know, B2C, you're direct to consumer, you are creating a brand, you are pursuing purchase interest and customer loyalty based on your brand. With B2B, you're behind the scenes, you're doing everything you can to make your client, your customer look good. And so I'd find oftentimes, and I just couldn't put my finger on it, we would have friction, everything from a press release we wanted to do to promote our our customer. Um, we're the acquiring company that was B2C would think, well, why are you promoting them, right? We've got to, we've got to build, build your name, build your prominence. And right, that's right. just not how we were wired. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this this is a really exciting story. I know you and I, we've spoken about this briefly, but um let's paint a picture, you know, let's visualize uh, that particular scene, right? So uh, it was, uh, was it an American company? Uh, or was it an international company? So both you know, international, both international. And uh, uh, one of them was American. The other one was European. Um, one, uh, one headquarters in, in the United States, uh, but with multinational sensibilities. Uh, and then the acquiring company was based in Europe. And, right and yeah and the leadership teams were both very international or were they yes. very cultural the the acquiring company uh admittedly the leadership team was uh, uh all european right. uh predominantly uh european at the beginning that shifted over time uh and and that was an influence for sure you had not just company culture but you had country culture right uh, that said I, I would be quick to add because both companies had multinational sensibilities sure i, I don't think that was a, a detriment as long as typically it can be when you sure. really have very different country cultures involved but you're absolutely right it, it did have influence on uh on some of that language barrier Right, right. So, so maybe let's start the story uh, from when the announcement was made, and then how it kind of unfolded through the different stages. And when was your origin story, you know, kind of set at? And then how did that impact the integration? If it impacted the integration, and then was it ever resolved? Or you know, so so maybe we start the we start the journey uh, from the announcement date. Let's say. And from, from the announcement day, what I would say is I was really excited. I thought it was a, a brilliant move on the, on the part of the company that acquired us because we, we were a critical component to what they needed to, to succeed uh, in the future. Uh, and, and for me, actually, it was unfortunate that uh, that didn't happen as quickly, that integration. Okay. Uh, and as a result, uh, I think that they weren't able to optimize us to the extent that they could have. And by the time that integration really started, it was about two years in. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, they were facing so much competitive pressure. Right. Uh, that we were we were behind in, in our ability to really 
um, I don't want to say deliver because, you know, clearly the, the companies had, had been working previously. Sure. It just, it wasn't as successful. It could have been. And, and frankly, that's what, one of the motivations that I had in writing my book, uh, because I thought the opportunity was there, right? But because of that integration, and it's uh, from what I understand now, you know, in the research that I've done, that's not that's not unusual, right? Oftentimes, sure. particularly with multi-billion-dollar deals, you know, yeah. the actual integration is delayed, and in this case, I think it um, it hurt the acquiring company's ability to really be competitive. Right. Because, if you know, when you've got big companies and you're you're looking to to integrate them, it takes time. It takes. Right. Why do you think that there was a delay? Well, and I, I will absolutely say when I was in it, I, they made sense to me. Right. We we had good equity in the marketplace. We right. were known by our customers. Right. And there was a concern that if we were integrated too quickly, that right. we would lose a lot of customers. It gotcha. was an absolutely uh, uh, understandable. Uh, gotcha. So I, I completely get that. The issue, though, was that that delay um, probably had 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 that not been delayed as long as it had been, the company that acquired us could have leveraged us to a greater extent than they did. Right. Uh, and, and again, you and I both know, particularly when when things don't go well, there are a lot of variables that come into that. There were a lot of variables that played out in this particular acquisition. I purely focused on what I saw were missed opportunities and the culture right. piece of it, as you and I have talked about. Had, sure. had, I think, the culture piece been discussed in the due diligence, assessed, you know, we had many... Um, Areas where we were aligned, but some of the critical pieces, uh, as I've highlighted, that that B two B versus B two C, right. corporate versus entrepreneurial, uh, the culture for countries as well, all of that played a part right. in in making that integration uh, not happen as quickly sure. uh, as it could have. Sure, you you mentioned a very interesting thing, which is like a delay of two years, right? So what happens? from day one, you know, the day the crossover, the um, changeover of ownership took place. I mean, when did they start including your team, you and your team in some of the decision-making? When would they come and speak with you and discuss items with you? Or was it like for next two years, there was nothing. And then they came and said, hey, you know what, we should, we should talk. Yeah. Well, for the first, the first couple of years, actually, and, and, you know, right or wrong. Um, the first two years, it was really deciding who was going to head head this entity. Okay. Uh, you know, who was going to be CEO? Was right. it going to be one of their guys? Was it going to be one of our guys? Uh, and I think, frankly, that that long process uh, added to the stress uh, right. because you didn't know who who was going to end up being head right. uh, of the division overall. Uh, so in, in my role, yeah. it was just getting a sense of the other company, but there were no mandates directly. So when that did start to happen where it was, no, 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 that, that's no longer your process. You can't do it that way. It came as a bit of a shock because we had been operating. I don't want to say business as usual, because we were sure. looking for areas to partner and, and work together. Um, but then our leadership started to leave once our CEO was not selected to be the CEO of the division. Interesting. And once that starts to happen, yeah, you you can you oftentimes lose key talent at the top, right? And right. so that's when things really started to to play out, right? Now, again, you know the the symptoms that are common to uh, to mergers and acquisitions. I experienced them, and and sure. and that's why I, I wanted to help help make sure people better understood. Here's how to navigate that and, and succeed through it. Yeah, yeah, and that's very valuable because literally, um, now when this started out, I'm sure it wasn't that for the next two years, we're not going to integrate. It was essentially, right. we don't know when we're going to integrate. And there's this whole uncertainty uncertainty that existed. Um, take us And some companies, as you know, right? They do that yeah. intentionally. They sure. keep it separate. Um, and it, it always remains that way. In our case, that wasn't it. It was just uh, the integration started later. Yeah. And you did not know when would, would it start, right? So 
during that period of uncertainty, what were some of the thinking, some of the uh, approaches that you took, you know, because literally you weren't sure of what's the future going to look like from a strategy perspective, and yet you needed to continue your business as usual. Um, maybe share some of the dynamics that kind of went on in your mind at that point in time. Well, one in particular that stands out was our creative process. Mm -hmm. So our creative process in B2B was to do creative that served our different customers. We right. were in, in multiple industries, uh, you know, automotive, enterprise, government. And when you're B2C, you know, you, you have, you've got consumers. That's who you're right. after. You obviously will, will target based on demographic, but right. you know, for the most part, you're, you're, you're going after a certain set of consumers. So that creative process for me stands out as an example of where we really tried to help our, our partner, uh, right. the acquiring company better understand that in our creative process, we wanted to serve our customer audience. So literally involving them in the creative process, because initially it got blocked a lot simply because they didn't understand, well, why are you, why are you doing marketing or advertising for the client? Like that's, right. they should be doing that. But we had opportunities because we actually knew our market better. It was our product. Sure. Yeah. To really refine the messaging. So the creative process involving them in it, initially, obviously, we were frustrated because they kept blocking it. And then I realized the more we involve them in the process to help them see how we develop the creative, what the value proposition is, and how we go about it in partnership with our customers, how that actually helped us, uh, not only with the customer, but but helped us drive sales of our product because we were known as a great partner in that regard. And it stands out for me because I remember I could see that shift over time. You know, right. initially they blocked it to understanding to even adapting that creative process for their own work uh, because they recognized it made us not only a great partner, but it also made the work that we did much more strategic because we were we were working hand in hand with each of our customers, understanding their brand and their end user. And and you know it would, now you can look. I look back on on these experiences with rose colored glasses. You know, sure. I will tell you there was a lot of cursing initially as you're going through it, but I think it just it stands out as a good example of when you start to respect. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's hold on to that. that. Yeah, let's hold on to that respect part, right? Because it's quite, it's not unusual to see contempt or to see condescending attitude, especially from the acquirer side. Absolutely. Where, yeah, they see, hey, you know, you're doing it the wrong way. We know it better than you. I, I mean, what were some of those uh, incidents? If you could share some examples of what happened then, and how did you? navigate those on based on best of your abilities back then and how did you get them from that position and kind of took them uh, held their hands and took them through the journey made them aware of why it needs to be done in a certain way well and and, and you're right the way you phrase it it was a journey you don't right. know at the beginning and this is particularly after i've done the the research that i did for the book Oftentimes, both sides come to that partnership with arrogance. I mean, right. you're, you're best in class on both sides. Typically, that's what you want. Exactly. So yeah. we absolutely were arrogant about our value. Right. You know, uh, there was a significant amount paid for us. And then you also start to appreciate over time, at least you you hope you will. And I do think that was the case, but it took a while. Okay, we have a lot to learn from each other. Uh, and that's why actually going back to the original part of our discussion, it's why I, I talk about culture and due diligence, because having that appreciation sooner in that journey helps you find common ground, right. helps you find those opportunities for collaboration. So initially, uh, I would say that arrogance kept us from, from partnering to the extent that we could have and, and should have. But there's a story that I tell in um, in my book where both sides felt that how we went to market, we had the best approach. You know, our the company that acquired us had one 
one go-to-market plan and we had one that we had done for a while. Uh, and ultimately in this meeting where no one was, no one was giving an inch, there was a, a junior product manager who said, okay, stop. Let's, we need to step back from this and think about what is best for our end user. What is best for the client? And using that as the North Star, and I talk about that uh, not only in the consulting work I do, but you know, whenever I'm asked, you know, what are some of the important guidelines that the companies need to think about? It's always keeping your client front and center and as your North Star. And in that regard, it helped. I don't want to say it initially helped overcome the arrogance, but certainly it was an epiphany moment that was important to say, it doesn't matter whose process is better. It What matters is what's best for the client and what's going to get us there most efficiently uh, and effectively um, to serve our customer. And, and that for, you know, for any M&A deal is, is an important lesson to always keep in mind. Yeah, that's such an important point because during acquisitions, companies get so stuck in their day-to-day operations and their tactical stuff that they forget that everything needs to happen primarily for their customers or the, the value proposition that needs to be fulfilled for their customers. And that's a, such an important call out. Uh, thanks for that. Um, now let's shift gears and let's talk about your book, right? What was the, what was the thing that triggered you um, uh, or, or in your journey that made you write this book? And then let's talk briefly about what does the book have without giving away um, a, a lot of the 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 interesting parts, but you know maybe share one or two anecdotes or examples or funny incidents uh, from your book for our viewers. Happy, happy to. Uh, and so this is my book. I, it, I said the title, and I I love it to this day. I'm very very proud of it. I know it was the the story that the stories that I've been sharing, my origin story, were when I first got the idea. Wow, I should really write this down. Um, Because I learned a lot when when you're going through uh, an acquisition for the first time, you know, it can it can be very destabilizing. You're you're experiencing things you haven't typically experienced in business. You're experiencing emotions. Right. When we're when we're on the top of our game and we're building the company and we're going to market, you know, you know, the objectives, you've got the strategy and you execute. But when you're going through a merger and acquisition, and as we keep talking throughout, right, you're trying to integrate, you're trying to figure out how each other works. There's a lot of testing, uh, a lot of beta testing. You don't know the answers. You're figuring things out. And that emotional piece is what I thought was lacking. In any book that I was looking for, you know, how to lead through times of change and uncertainty, it wasn't addressing a lot of what I saw that was happening. Uh, in the merger and acquisition that I experienced in that first scenario. And then I went through two more. I went to two uh, other companies and in all instances, uh, I went through another acquisition. Uh, And I thought by that third acquisition experience, I definitely have to write a book. I had actually leaders who I worked with uh, in the second um, company that I went to, leaders who said, wow, you seem to know you seem to know what you're doing to lead your team. And I said, well, it's because I've been them. I know what it feels sure. like to be acquired. And when you're acquired and all the emotions that go with it, so I can anticipate what they're thinking and what they might be feeling. And my job as a leader is not only to anticipate them, anticipate the issues and challenges that they might be facing, right. even if they don't articulate them. And that was that was really the what prompted. I had enough leaders say, you should really write a book about that. And then when I went to my third company and had yet another acquisition experience, I thought, okay, I'm going to take the time to write this book uh, and spent three years researching. What are, what are some of the consistent challenges that mergers and acquisitions face? Right. Uh, and as you and I have discussed, the, the challenges were consistent, culture being one of them. The, right. the fact that companies don't appreciate uh, how challenging it can be to integrate cultures, particularly if you haven't thought about it. If you sure. haven't discussed it in the due diligence. Sure. Now, was writing something that you have been doing in the past, as in writing articles or blogs? Because no. book is a <laughs> tall order, right? You know, it's not one day, hey, you know what, I'm going to write a book. And then while I, in a couple of months, the book's ready. It's a journey as well. 
It, it absolutely is. And what was fascinating to me, so my book is a satirical business book. It's illustrated, right? I right. talk about the stages of grief that a workforce can go through when they've identified with their company. Right. Uh, and definitely, this is what I experienced in my first acquisition experience. You you had people, it was very entrepreneurial, uh, a lot of wicked smart people just you know, working, as they say, balls out to, to go to market and, right. and be successful. And then, you know, trying to work with, a, uh, you know, our acquiring company that was more corporate, had, had, a, had a longer market history. And right. so I, I talk about the stages of grief that people can go through when they're transitioning into a new company and they don't know what that's going to be. Uh, I also, I, I talk about personality changes, what happens to people uh, in times of change and uncertainty, what you might see um, from them. And and Enervin, yeah, you and I have talked about this. I use the pandemic as a reference point. Sure. You know, imagine during the pandemic, right? Think I know we we haven't gotten completely past it, but right at the beginning, you probably saw people behave in ways you'd never thought they would. You thought you That's knew right. them well, and they acted in different ways. And I say, so the same thing happens in, in mergers and acquisitions. When people are uncertain of the future, you can see a different side of them. And I wrote about that. I, uh, I, I defined 10 different personas. What can happen to people? Um, when they're afraid of change uh, and facing uncertainty. And I, I wanted to capture that in my book, again, to help leadership understand. You can't always assume people are going to act the same way that they always have. There are going to be people who rise to the occasion, and then there will be right. people who act in different ways. And that's, for me, what was critical uh, to capture in the book. Excellent. Um, for the listeners, we'll give the description of the book um, in the show notes. Post book, um, what are some of the changes that you've seen in yourself when you approach the topic of MA and culture, you know, and especially because, uh, you know, and, and I've gone through this uh, myself a couple of times, and I can say that it brings about a fundamental change in the way you think, especially because a book is a uh, writing a book is a discovery process as, uh, as well. So what are some of the changes that you've seen in yourself? Well, the first big change, and I, and I laugh about this because I have I have talked about this uh, with other authors uh, and also on podcasts. But when I first wrote the book, I'll tell you, it was a little bit of a, a Charles Bronson or a Liam Neeson, you know, vendetta book. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you work out all the... <laughs> I need to save the world and, you know. <laughs> exactly. You know, you you look at it like, wow, you know, all these people, you know, I can't believe what they did. And even the personas, right? right. I had, I have a person in mind for each persona. Sure. And then, thankfully, I had a great, uh, a great book development partner. Right. And I, and I realized that this book will serve no one. It's cathartic for me. <laughs> it's right. gotten it out of my system. But what I wanted to bring to the world was a book that said, Here's what can happen to people. You may even become a caricature version of yourself. Right. Uh, and, and so for me, the biggest transformation was recognizing that in order for this book to serve other people, I needed to, I needed to paint not only here's who you may work with, here's what you can see changes that happen to people, but then how to work with them or how to motivate them or to incentivize them, right? Because sure. I've got everything from, you know, the missing in action which, uh, you know, now they're called quiet quitters. Right. But you know, people who hold back. Uh, I've got the former rock star, you know, the person who was a rock star, but then stumbles when the metrics for success change. Right. I have the know nothing and the know it all. So I have all these personas. And what I'm really proud of with the book is I, I went from, you know, my vendetta book to let's just talk about why, what drives these behaviors? Why do people change? Yeah, uh, it's human nature. We right. all act. We all grieve differently. We all yeah. act differently during times of change and uncertainty. And and for me, what um, that transformation of of creating a book that really serves people who are not only going through a merger and acquisition, but the people who are leaders through that time. Because I continue to say it's a different toolkit. Correct. It's, when you're when you're facing change, you've got to be a different kind of leader. You know, compassionate, 
empathetic, mm-hmm. yeah, very clear and transparent in your communications. It's it's a, a certain type of leader that you need to be. Uh, and I wanted people to understand here's here's the right kind of leader that will succeed in this in this in this time of change uh, and uncertainty. So the, for me, it was a positive transformation, thankfully. Awesome. Awesome. Now we can obviously have a complete episode on your book writing journey, but coming back to the <laughs> point of culture, um, what changes have you seen over the past you know, couple of decades uh, regarding people's acceptance or rather business leaders' acceptance of people and culture playing an important part in MA, especially MA integration? And how do you see that evolve over the next, let's say, five to 10 years? Well, I I always look for silver linings, right. and I think one of the outcomes of of you know the pandemic years was a growing sensitivity to what people can handle in times of change and uncertainty. I think we still have a long road to go. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I, that's very true. You know, this sort of sensitivity about people and people being an asset for a company. I think that's grown. Uh, tremendously over the past couple of years, for sure. Yeah. I think too, and this is how you and I bonded, more research is being done around culture. Right. More research to understand the implications and consequences, not only how to define culture, but how does that impact a company and its way of doing business? And what are the factors you need to consider when merging or acquiring another company? Uh, so the, you know the research that you've done, uh, I would say, is is a great advance, and and our ability through through technology to do that kind of research, so that you have data that informs the decision making. Right. Culture, I think, has suffered in the past because people just couldn't couldn't define it. You know, it's just sure. the way we do business. It's how we go to market. It's how we manage our budgets or incentivize. Right. It's all a li- a list of variables. Right. Um, but by doing research to say, okay, you know, here, here's the culture definition for this company, and here's what it would be for this company. Let's see how how well we will align and where are areas that we'll need to to overcome differences. Uh, right. and I think that for me is a critical transformation on that culture piece and how it's how it's developing. We still have we still have work to do, but to me, that's an amazing, amazing step in the right direction. Right, right. Um, for a company that's starting out on their journey, and let's say they've acquired a company recently, what are some of the, um, what, what would be an advice that you'll give? What would be a st- good starting point, point for that company on culture? Well, it's it's a question I get asked often um, right. from CEOs, <laughs> right? If you had one piece of advice, and I said, well, this is atypical because companies don't tend to come to the, the deal table with this mindset, but coming, sure. to the, coming to the table with humility, right? coming to the table, recognizing you both need each other and that the critical ingredient to success is respect, respect for one another. Uh, right. And you, you and I have talked about this in the past. I use the marriage analogy a lot. I right. find that it just <laughs> helps people you know, to understand. So I say, think about the, the partnerships that right. you've seen, marriages that you admire. Love is a foundation for sure. Yeah. But above all, you see that respect is there, that yeah. both partners, each partner respects the other and they bring the best out in each other. And when I define it in those terms, I, I see CEOs light bulb moments. Right. Yes, you're right. How yeah. do we bring the best out in each other? And for me, that's the critical piece. Right, right. No, I think that absolutely makes sense. And the analogy of marriages are often... Um, based on human psychology. And I think that plays a very central role uh, in defining culture in MA integration as well. Um, now, obviously, many business leaders, uh, it's not that they have ill intention of not doing culture, but it's because they may not be aware of the intricacies of culture. What right. are some of the key elements that you would advise them to, for them to, to explore further or to to analyze before they step into the cultural integration space? 
Well, I, I think too often the assessment of culture is based on senior leadership from both sides having a couple of good dinners. Yes, date. Right? We'll use a date dating analogy. The five. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to keep dating. using the dating analogy. <laughs> right. So we have a couple of good dinners. Let's let's we go on a great couple of first dates. Right. If you haven't met the kids, yeah. And you haven't met the in-laws, yeah. Right. And you don't know, you know, is the is the person's house a mess? Mm -hmm. Right. Is all of their furniture cheap yeah. <laughs> or, or filthy? Yeah. You know, if we use that marriage analogy, it really helps you um, appreciate that a couple of good first dates and, right. and you, you had amazing first dates. You are in love. Right. There's that right. honeymoon period. But if you haven't gotten to know the in-laws, the kids and you don't know what the house is like. Uh, and when I say house, right, typically in the transaction, the, the due diligence, right, looks at all the numbers, the financials, absolutely. Right. But you need to look beyond just the structure of the house, Correct. right? How is the house kept? Yeah, yeah. How they are, do you keep it clean? Do you have, do you have new furniture or do you have things that are, uh, you know, probably yeah. need some replacing? And so for me, and, and I'll say like, I recognize and appreciate you have confidentiality, you have sure. legal issues, but there are ways, because I've, I've worked with, with companies to do this, there are ways to be able to get a sense, you know, from that next level leadership down to find out how is the work done it, from right. the people who are doing the work to have that line of sight is critically important. Um, to figure out, you know, is the furniture old or new? What shape right. is the house in? The more informed you are, the better chances you have for success. That that moment that you you consummate the marriage, that you know the right. the deal is that the deal is done, and uh, and it's why, you know, I thank you for letting me use my marriage analogy. But it's it's, <laughs> it's what helps leaders really understand. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. I would would I marry somebody without really knowing their background and and how they approach things and you know how they keep their house? Right. No, you, you know, at least you shouldn't. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And and the house analogy is an analogy that Clint, Clint Kendrick uses quite often. You know, it's like imagine uh, buying a house, acquiring a house, uh, you know, and and then he tries to draw analogies with the M and A uh, and M and A integration. Um, Why Clint and I get along so well? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> full of analogies. Yeah, um, a personal question: What, uh, let's say, business books or um, podcasts or YouTube channels or resources do you use for for work uh, or get inspired by? Uh, if you could share a few. Well, you know, I, I'm a, an old fashioned gal. So I, right. I go with the classics uh, right. book that helped me to a, a couple of books. So you're not going least... to go back, uh, go back 2000 years and start talking about. The... <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, and it's funny because the one book that I found when I was going through my own merger and acquisition, and I, it's funny that you ask because I, I have it here because I've been using it recently for reference, is Surviving Corporate Transition. So William Bridges, uh, yes. who's the pioneer in, in, in talking about transition in a business context. Um, he had Surviving Corporate Transition and Managing Transitions. And I, I'm just thankful that I found his book early on because he talks right. about, you know, the old way of doing things, the neutral zone that you are in for a period of time until you embrace your new beginning. And I thought it was such um, an important um, frame of reference, not only for me and the work that I do, but just, you know, when I was going through it myself. So I cannot emphasize enough. Obviously, I would promote my book, but sure. I think he's the pioneer. So we will already include your books. Uh, oh, no, I, <laughs> and I appreciate that. Right. But for me, um, William Bridges, uh, just the, the books that he wrote on managing transitions was cru yes. crucial. And then Cotter, you know, leading change. Yes. Uh, yes. The eight steps for, for what it takes for uh, a company to embrace change and navigate through it. And then lastly, the the Heath brothers. Um, I had the privilege uh, of being in a workshop with Dan Heath. They've written a number of books, which right. making change stick. 
those books uh, for me were very informative, you know, because they talk about the head and the heart. You have to engage both the head and the heart and shape the path. That's right. Yeah. Right? You, you, you can't just be, as we've talked about, you can't be just transactionally right. focused. You have to equally capture people emotionally. Yeah. And that's why my book fills in fills in that gap with the emotional aspect uh, of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, and and frankly, Dan Heath written wrote uh, a book in 2020 called Upstream, which uh, I think is critical. I that, yeah. Well, it talks about a lot of the changes that we're trying to implement is because sure. we're attacking symptoms of a bigger problem. Yes. So his premise is you need to figure out where the problem starts. Go upstream, attack right. the problem. And for me, actually, it's why uh, I'm doing what I'm doing now, which is how how do we teach mergers and acquisitions in schools in MBA programs? We need to teach it differently. We need to integrate culture, correct, people strategy in how we educate people who are going out to to professionally do mergers and acquisitions. Um, so I'm excited about the 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 work that I'm doing now, and and would say that that book upstream uh, really influenced how I think about it. Awesome, awesome. I, I need to, to look it up because I'm aware of, uh, uh, in fact, uh, in during transformation, I often end up using um, juxtapositioning of uh, Kruger-Ross's curve or, with yes. Willem Bridges, and it actually nicely folds through um, where you are still in the old ways of doing things, but it's the neutral zone, as Willem Bridges very nicely points out, that needs to be managed because as long as you're in the neutral zone, you'll always have a um, tendency of falling back into the original way of doing right. things versus when you actually move to the future zone, that even if you fall back, you fall to the neutral zone rather than going back to the old ways of doing things. And, and uh, I do I do talk about that in my in my keynote presentations with organizations, right. exactly what you said, right? You got to yeah. get through the stages of grief. Yeah. To accept and embrace the new way of doing things. Cool, cool. And um, have you read John Carter's recent book? Because this is this has been one of those um, pivotal moments for me. Because in the, I think it's called Thrive. Um, yes. And uh, the way he talks about saying, you know, and to the point about people and culture, right? How people and cultures are so much more important than what used to happen in the past. And I've kind of drawn inspiration from that book. And I say, previous MA, MA integrations were based on a survive um, right. philosophy. So, which essentially meant that when you made the announcement, you would try to make the employees of the acquiring, no, not the acquiring, the acquired company to give them tools to survive through that period compared mm -hmm. to if you got them excited saying hey you you know what you're joining this mega company or joining this this exciting company where your opportunities are going to be endless or whatever they could have easily gone to the thrive and you and i we both know that when you're in a thrive uh, a mindset, you're likely to produce a lot more, you're likely to be more productive, you're likely to be innovative, rather mm -hmm. than you survive. The moment you get into survival mode, your innovation goes for a toss. But thanks for sharing those uh, names of those books. Uh, we'll definitely put them in the uh, show notes. Couple and of you know, the, the point that you make uh, on the distinction, it's why I I talk about not just surviving, but thriving through mergers and acquisitions, because it's an important distinction. It's Correct. not just how do I get through it? How do I create opportunities? Because there yes. are opportunities there. And that's what I, I always want to promote. The mergers and acquisitions can be a, an amazing growth opportunity. Correct. You got to let go of the old way of doing things to see the new possibilities that are in front of you. Yeah, and that's another one where you and I were completely aligned. So we need to talk more, but not on this episode, um, <laughs> on, on the Thrive part. Uh, last couple of questions. Um, the nastiest um, incident that you encountered during a post-merger integration? Well, you know, again, I say that now I have the benefit of hindsight. Sure. What, what I can see happen for a leader is 
decisions that they made in the past under a certain set of circumstances that made absolute sense, suddenly they will get challenged on them, right? Why did you hire these people? Why did you create this unit? Um, right. You know, why do you incentivize? You know, there's a, a whole litany of things. Right. And suddenly you're made to question your decision-making process, which was mm. made in the in in the right context with the right set of information and so for me one of the and it's it's frankly it's what drove that section of my book about how people change sure because i saw a lot of people who said oh you're right you know mm. uh, we should let that person go he or she is an idiot right they, right they they provide no value right when actually we you know it wasn't true i i was witnessing you know the the, yeah. the department made sense but you now have new leadership that just doesn't get it doesn't understand and so you can you can make what was an important and appropriate decision seem foolhardy and stupid because now you have a new lens and you don't have the context. And so for right. me, frankly, that was a big part of what I wanted to shine a light on is mm -hmm. when the metrics for success change, it doesn't mean that the original metrics were bad, were stupid. You made decisions with a certain set of information. Um, and and for me, I, I always say to leaders, the most important thing you need to maintain through this is your integrity. Right. Don't abandon your integrity because at the end of this um, process, it's the one thing you can hold on to. And, and people will remember, you know, did you throw someone under under the bus to save your own skin hmm. or did you hold true and say, listen, absolutely. These decisions were made with with these set of factors. We're now moving and we're pivoting. So let's let's now reevaluate what's right, but uh, I guess don't lose sight of your integrity because that's where I saw um, some of the 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 bad behavior happen. Sure, sure. And how about something which was really really nice uh, created a lasting impression um, in your mind uh, from your M and A cultural journey? Uh, and it's one thing that when I talk about in in podcasts or in my speeches, uh, you know, people I can see their eyes light up. I'll say when I talk about the the former rock star, right, right the person who was the rock star who stumbles, yeah. The 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 counterbalance of that is you will see other people rise to the occasion, right. Because you now have new metrics that may be a, a better set of metrics for them to show their capabilities and their worth. Uh, and so I will always say to leaders, you, you, you spend some time to make sure that you're what, who were your rock stars, you know, help them where you can, but, but you can only spend so much energy helping someone else adapt and pivot, right? They need to embrace it and own it themselves. I said, but also be open to new rock stars emerging Right. And give them an opportunity to rise to the occasion and acknowledge that when you see it, because you'll have other people go, wow, you know, John used to kind of sit back and, and not really be involved, but I've seen a different side of John. Right. And, and I think that that can be one of the, the great, wonderful things that come out through times of, of change and uncertainty is, is new leaders can rise to the occasion. Cool, cool. And uh, one last question, which is somebody who's starting out their career, um, they may have done a couple of M&A transactions, but somebody who's going to deal with people and culture, um, what advice would you give them apart from reading your book? What other advice? Would you give them? <laughs> Thank you. You're doing a, a lovely plug. I, you know, it's, it's simple. Um, one, remember that they're people. You know, it's the golden rule and, and, and act with people, treat people as you would wish to be treated yourself. Right. I think when we always keep that front and center, you know, treat people how you wish to be treated, Right. recognize that maybe, you know, you're working on Excel spreadsheets, but those names, those numbers, they're people, they're human right. beings behind that. Uh, and I'm not saying that, um, you know, to draw emotion into everything. It's just to remember that you're dealing with people. Um, right. So you can't always anticipate how people will act. Um, you can't assume um, certain things, but also just don't forget that it's people. Uh, and, and I have found, particularly with younger analysts, uh, you know, whenever they've asked me for advice or, uh, you know, I've done a training or uh, uh, an academic presentation, 
uh, they'll always come up to me and say, you know, that was really powerful just to remember that it's people that we're dealing with. Excellent, excellent. And in this one, you haven't used the marriage analogy yet, but maybe next time you'll start using <laughs> some sort of an analogy. The next yeah. podcast. <laughs> the next podcast, yeah. Um, I, I'm sure some viewers or listeners may want to get in touch with you. What's the best way um, to reach out to you? Uh, I hang out a lot on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I write uh, and share a lot on LinkedIn. So definitely reach out to me there, Jennifer J. Fondreve. And then my my website, I know you'll include all of that in the, sure. in the show notes. But, uh, you know, my goal, I pivoted completely from a corporate marketing career to start all over again to create my, my um, human capital advisory consultancy. So I'm on a quest to really help more leaders be smarter about the people piece and how yes. to lead through it. So, um, you know, I always say, well, reach out to me if that's part of your quest too. Awesome, awesome. And I think that's a lovely uh, setting to end the show today. Jennifer, as usual, this was an absolute blast. Enjoyed the conversation, learned a lot, and look forward to having you again in one of our upcoming episodes. Watch. Thank you. Thank you. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Did you like today's content? If yes, then don't forget to hit the like button. If you heard something interesting, then don't forget to share it with your network and friends. And last but not least, please support us on this journey to spread awareness on topics related to M&A and integration by subscribing to our channel. That's all for now. Stay healthy and see you next time. And if you like this session, I'm sure you'll also like our latest new tool. It is a quick assessment scorecard to assess the robustness of your culture integration capabilities in M&A. It just takes less than five minutes to answer. It is for free and you get instantaneous assessment. So visit culturema.scoreapp.com. That's C-U-L-T-U-R-E-M-A dot S-C-O-R-E-A-P-P.com and find out for yourself. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. This show was sponsored by Fifth Chrome, a business strategy advisor in a training company specializing in M&A, post-merger integration, and business strategy. 